Amen. How deep the Father's love for us. When we were in Sunday school this morning, life groups, sorry, we're trying to call them life groups now. Uh, Cody mentioned that, that when we love Christ first, everything else falls into place, that all the, the fruits of the Spirit are merely a symptom of loving Jesus. And I was thinking, how do we love Jesus more? Well, we, we love him because he first loved us. His great, reflecting on his great love leads us to return that love to him, and then everything else falls into place. Good insights from Back Row Baptist back there, Cody uh, Berryhill. <laughs> Uh, we are excited to continue our series for uh, this week, and then we're going to take a break next week as we hear about the church's one foundation. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Uh, I assume that's where you're going, Bill, is uh, that you're going to talk about Jesus uh, as our firm foundation and faith in Christ, and no other foundation will last. So I'm excited to, to consider Woodmont's future being built on the firm foundation, uh, the, one, the one foundation of Jesus Christ. Uh, today we're going to look at an interesting text. We're going to start at the end of Isaiah chapter 42, and then we're going to pick it up in Isaiah chapter 43. Remember, these chapters and verses were added by scribes in about the 600s A.D., so they're not inspired, so they were never meant to be separated, and I'm excited to see how they flow into each other, and uh, I hope you will see that, uh, that God designed it this way. But these surprising strategies, how God's ways are infinitely better than our ways and infinitely different than our ways. They're not what we would expect God to do. There's an interesting book, fascinating book, that was written by an Episcopal uh, lady from Tennessee with a funny name. Her name is Phyllis Tickle. I think that's funny every time I hear it. Uh, she wrote a book called The Great Emergence. And what she did was trace the history of Christianity from the very beginning. And she realized that every 500 years or so, the, the Christian faith underwent a, a big transformation. She called it a rummage sale. Uh, every 500 years, the church seemed to have a, a garage sale that, that kind of got rid of some stuff that the Christian faith didn't need anymore, or maybe some stuff that the Christian faith never should have had in the first place, and they got rid of it. In 500 AD, it was the great monastic movement to the desert. You had all these great desert fathers and mothers that, that began these uh, communities that were ascetic, and, and they were out in the wilderness areas. And then in 1000 AD, you had the great schism of East and West, right? You had the Eastern Orthodox in the East, and then you had uh, the Roman Catholic, what became the Roman Catholic Church in Rome in the West, this big divide in the church. And then in 1500, you know what happened, I hope. We had 500 years ago, the Reformation, where Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others decided that we, we didn't need all these extra rules, that they were not biblical, that all we needed was salvation by, uh, as Scripture alone tells us, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It was a beautiful time for the church to be reformed and made healthier and made stronger, built on the foundation of God's Word. And then, 500 years from then is now. If you see where Miss Tickle is going, she says we're due. She says that we're due for a great movement of God. 
and, uh, some kind of great, uh, you know, reformation of type event that might happen in our lifetimes. She thought, and some other church leaders thought that it might be this emerging church movement. That's why she called the book The Great Emergence. But I think that ship kind of has already sailed. It didn't gain a lot of traction. It's kind of a group of progressive Christians that were all about, you know, dialogue and, and deconstructing things. And, uh, you know, I'm all about dialogue too, but... Uh, when you leave that one foundation of Christ and his word, then uh, that gets a little messy, uh, to say the least. And I don't know what the future of the global church may be. I don't know what God is up to in our world and up to in the church uh, universal. But I do know that culture is undergoing a, a great global shift, a big dramatic shift. Secular sociologists and, and philosophers have pointed out how we live now in the first time really in human history in what they call a secular age. For the first time, governments and countries are trying to make laws and, and conduct systems of governance without appealing to a higher authority. It's, it's a secular age where uh, the leaders in our world have uh, no baseline really for a foundation of morality or what is right and true and good. No sense of transcendence or purpose or meaning that comes from outside of ourselves. No sense of uh, goodness that comes from outside of our natural world. And of course, the prevailing doctrine that inevitably accompanies a secular age is the doctrine of self. It becomes all about the individual. A system that is completely secular becomes all about me because there is no greater good. There is no concept beyond ourselves, so it's just about me. Find your own truth and live it out as authentically as possible is what our culture is teaching our children. But God has a plan. And we know what his plan ultimately is. We know that he has a plan from the beginning of time to, to fix what's wrong with us and with our world. We know that this is all going somewhere. He's going to make all things new. He's restoring. He's recreating. He's renewing. He's redeeming this world through Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of his rescue plan. But it's not just up to Jesus to kind of do it all by himself. God always had a plan from the beginning to create a family of human beings made in God's image to partner with him in this work of redemption and reconciliation. We've become agents of reconciliation through Jesus. Before Jesus arrived, those people were the chosen people, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, whom God gave his perfect law to and whom he led out of Egypt and whom he set in the land of Canaan from which they were to become a conduit of God's blessing to the world. It didn't work out that way. God ended up sending his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And since that time, on this side of the cross and on this side of the empty tomb, it's us, the new covenant people of God, what we call the church universal. 
If God's people are going to be effective in whatever God is up to in the 21st century, then it must first be shaped by a great movement of God. It must be shaped by a great movement of God. We think about the first church that exploded into the world after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit showed up and filled God's people. We think about 500 AD, these monks who had these life-changing encounters with the Lord by stripping away everything else but the Lord and his word. We think about Orthodox and Catholics who set up entire uh, empires based on Christian values and virtues. We know that slavery was eradicated in much of the Christian world, largely in part because Christians realized to own another image bearer was wrong. And the Reformation brought much needed change to God's people, a change that led directly to a Baptist church being here on this corner. That is our heritage. What heritage will we leave? The Reformation that God is doing, I don't know exactly what it looks like in this secular age, but I do know that we need a new Reformation, that the church must constantly be in the process of God reforming it. I do know that the Spirit of God continues to align the church with his word in order to play our part in what God is doing. What we're going to see in our text for today is that God longs to do this work of a new reformation, a whole new kind of way of, of having this movement of God in the church, just as he did among the people of Judah in Isaiah's day. And while we keep going our own way, a way that leads to death and destruction, ultimately, God comes gently to us, meets us where we are, and brings us back to life. I'm going to use Ray Ortland's outline for this section because I think he nailed it, and it's just so good. I've tweaked it a little bit, but we're going to see a new reformation today. We're going to see uh, this, what God is doing among his people and how it applied in Isaiah's day and how it applies in our day. And first, we're going to see the problem the problem is that we don't get it, that we are blind and deaf and, and stubborn and calloused hearts. But that's not the end. Second, we're going to see that God intervenes, that he intentionally comes to rescue us, even though we don't deserve it. And then we're going to see why. The third thing, we're going to see the reason. Because only God is God. It's about his glory, ultimately, and his perfect holiness. And then finally, we're going to see the outcome. We're going to see renewal reformation that ultimately results in the praise of the eternal God of all creation. So let's start in chapter two of chapter 42, verses 18 and 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? We talked last week about the servant of the Lord. I told you there were four servant songs in this section of Isaiah, and that that servant we revealed was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's not the servant that he's talking to here. Remember back in chapter 41, he called Jacob his servant, and he also called him a worm. He was helpless. He was powerless. 
But God promised to transform his lowly servant Jacob into this powerful threshing board. Remember that uh, from chapter 41? Just nod your head and that'll make me feel better. Like, oh yeah, that was a great point, Nathan, that you made. <laughs> a great point from God's word that we remember. But they don't get it because they're blind and deaf. And the Lord is pleading with his people, with his servant Jacob, open your ears, open your eyes. I've been revealing myself to you, but you've not been getting it. If you want the, the answer in chapter, in verse 24, he says, this is Jacob that he's talking to again, not the unnamed servant who is the Messiah. Isaiah spends a lot of time throughout his book getting us to realize who God is and who we are. To realize that God is God and we are not. He's showing us this proper perspective of the infinite greatness and glory and perfection of the high and holy God and that we are more broken and more flawed and more desperate than we ever could have imagined. But at the same time, we are more loved, more accepted, more purpose-infused than we ever dared to dream. We're going to see the full scope of the gospel throughout Isaiah's work. You know, we don't really have a clue as to what is going on in our limited understanding. I often think about that illustration of the mosaic that we see like a mosaic from about six inches in front of our face when it's about 40 yards wide. We can't see the big picture, but God is the one who put the tiles in the place in the first place. He knows what's going on. He sees everything. Our scope is so limited the pandemic has really exposed, I think, the, the limits of human ability. You know, things keep fluctuating and changing, and, and our, our amazing science community is doing incredible work, and the, the vaccines, I think, were a work of, of God through our medical uh, community and scientists, just incredible stuff, but they still can't figure this thing out, can they? It's still changing and adapting, and so we are having to change and adapt. I think we've been brought to our knees by a virus that we still don't fully understand, but it's not just science, it's not just time and space that we don't understand. What else do we not understand? Look at verses 20 and 21. Jacob, the servant of God, the people of God, sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. God was pleased to show his ways, his perfect, beautiful ways to his people. Remember Mount Sinai, he showed up and met with them and gave them the law, not just to give them rules to follow, but to make them holy, to set them apart from the rest of the people in all creation, to make them like himself. And they were supposed to display the glory of God's good ways to the world. But they didn't. They didn't see it as glorious. They didn't understand that what God was giving them was the tools to flourish and thrive. They were supposed to attract the nations to God. But instead, look at verses 22 and 23. This is a people plundered and looted. They are, uh, all of them, trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder, with none to rescue, spoil, with none to say, 
restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? Instead of drawing the nations to God, they were now plundered by the nations. The nations around them had become uh, manipulators of this little country of Judah. And instead of blessing those nations, they were now the property of those nations. Remember Hezekiah showing the Babylonians around his palace and around the treasury, look at all the good stuff we have. The Babylonians were like, yep, we're taking that, we're taking that, we're taking that. They came in and, and took it all. The people of God missed their purpose to be a light for the nations, to to be planted and rooted there in Canaan from which they would bless the world, but they didn't. So now the Lord lovingly in his mercy and wisdom and grace lovingly corrects them by giving them discipline and judgment. And it's not pretty. We see who gave up Jacob to the looter. It was God that did it. Stubborn Jacob. He doesn't learn his lesson. I always tell my kids, you can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. You pick. (laughs) And usually they pick the easy way. But sometimes, (laughs) in their stubbornness, I said, okay, you pick the hard way. Sometimes it's it's fun for them because I'll carry them upstairs on my, I got to work on that. I can't make it fun. It's got to be punishment. But God, I think, does the same thing with us. He says, do you want to do it the easy way, Nathan, or do you want to do it the hard way? And so many times we choose the hard way because we don't learn our lesson that God's ways are best. It's hard to punish our kids as parents. I don't enjoy making it hard for them, but we do it because we love them and we know what's best for them and we want what's best for them. And that will come only if we can discipline them in the way that they should go. It doesn't always work, I know. (laughs) How is God gonna solve the problem of human stubbornness and spiritual numbness and and heart callousness. Let's look at verses uh, one and two from chapter 43 and how God intervenes now. This is part two. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. How quickly this turns, right? God's like, man, you people don't get it. You're so stubborn. You, you don't listen to my instruction. And he says, but, but don't be afraid. Even though you're in this season of judgment and, and not a fun season that you're in right now, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be with you. We as Christians, what's the number one commandment in all of Scripture, the most repeated commandment in all of Scripture? Fear not. As Christians, we have no reason to fear. Fear is a great tool for fundraising. Fear is a great tool for getting elected. We hear You know, politicians all day long on both sides, don't get me wrong, try to scare people into voting for them. But as Christians, we shouldn't be duped. We have nothing to 
fear. Yes, in this world we will have tribulation, but take heart. Our God has overcome the world. Yes, we will go through hard things, but the evil in those hard things serves no uh, purposeful intention of harm to us. We don't have to fear the evil in the difficult circumstances of life. Sometimes those difficult circumstances were brought on by the Lord himself. He, he puts us through the fire. He puts us through the flood, but he promises never to leave us and never to forsake us. He's with us in those challenging times. When I think about the water overwhelming us, I feel that way a lot in my life, but I probably never have felt that more than the first time I went whitewater rafting on the Ocoee River. It was my freshman year in college, and we, you know, 19-year-old guys, we thought we can do everything. We're going to, you know, set the record on the river or whatever. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing, but we were feeling confident. But it had rained for three full days before our rafting trip was scheduled. And when we got to the river, I overheard the guides nervously talking to each other. I can't believe they're letting us run this today. <laughs> it was a flood level on the Ocoee. And all the usual routes that they you know, took were, were wiped out. And they were so excited, but nervous too, because they had a bunch of knuckleheads that were trying not to, you know, they were responsible for our lives, which I didn't realize how dangerous it was until the guy in the boat behind me fell out of his boat, shot up in the air and came down on a rock and broke his tailbone. Uh, I got a little scared when I saw that. This is, this is real. But our guide was incredible. She, she said, listen, guys, if you will do what I say, you will be safe. I will get you through this. When she said, all down, we hit the deck. When she said, full right, we paddled as hard as we could. When she said, full left, we you know, just obeyed everything she said. And we perfectly, sometimes I was like, why are we going this way? She knew what she was doing. And when we obeyed her commands to the fullest, we thrived. The Lord is the Lord of the river. He, he's the one who designed the river. He's the one who filled the river. He's the one who knows every inch of it. And he guides us in his perfect wisdom and omniscient knowledge. And when we listen to him and obey him in those overwhelming times, we find that we can thrive through them. We know that our God is in charge of all things. And sometimes we don't feel like he cares about our situation. A lot of times we feel like God's gone away from us, but the reality 100% of the time is that it's we who have walked away from the Lord. And when we return to him, we find that he is still on his throne, that he cares more for us than we could ever imagine. The reality is that God never leaves us. Look at how he feels about us in verse four. In, in verse four, he says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. God gives up these other nations like Babylon. He actually sacrificed to Cyrus and the Persians so that his people, Judah, this little nation, you know, who've been dominated and destroyed and taken captive by mighty Babylon, God gave Babylon into the hands of the Persians so that his beloved people could return home in safety to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, including the temple and the walls. God loves us so much that he exchanges lives, and this points obviously to the one life that would be the ultimate 
sacrifice for God's people, the life of his only son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave as a propitiation for our sins. That means something that takes bad and turns it to good for our sakes. The gospel is not just that we were more blind and and deaf than we thought, but that we're also more loved, more deeply cared for by the God of all creation, who sees us as precious, who loves us more than I love my own children. God loves us because in bringing us back to life, he reveals his glory to the world, which is his ultimate purpose. He is the most glorious being in all of creation, and we are created to declare his greatness throughout the whole world. Look at verse 7. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, God made us to to further his own perfect glory in the world, because that's what the world really needs, is the glory of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ of what God is doing through Jesus. You know, the very first words in Rick Warren's best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, anybody read it? I've read it, it's got got copies on my shelf, it's so good. The first line, did anybody know what the very first words are? It's not about you. It's not about you. When we as Christians get so bent in on ourselves, we revert to our fallen nature, we do what the world says, and we look to our own interest We miss the point. God has created us not for our own selves, but for himself. When we realize that, we do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. We we lose our life for his sake, and then we find it. That's when we really start to flourish and thrive. That brings us to part three. Why does God do all this for us? Why does he do this through us? It's because it's his nature. It's because he alone is God. Look at verses 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. God is so sick of us turning to our counterfeit gods that are so incapable of saving us. He's saying, I'm the only one who can. I'm the only one who's powerful enough to save you. And and that's that's kind of a a harsh statement. We talked about this in our life group a few weeks ago. In our culture of postmodern kind of tolerance, it really is offensive to say that only God is God and everything else is wrong. Tim Keller helped me understand this a little bit better. He said he was on a panel uh, with an imam and a rabbi at New York University with a bunch of undergrad students, and they all agreed, the three panelists, that if one of them was correct in their understanding of God, then the other two were wrong. And, And some student got so angry, he stood up and he said, you guys are what's wrong with the world. You're what's wrong with the world. You can't tolerate each other. And these guys are friends. The three, the rabbi and the imam and the pastor are all good friends. And they're like, we, we get coffee and hang out all the time. We like each other. It's not that we can't tolerate each other. It's just that we don't agree on what truth is. We don't agree on what's right. And, and every religion, even that kid that stood up and, and screamed, has an exclusive truth claim. That kid 
believed that there was no God. Okay, that's his exclusive truth claim. And if he's right, then we're all wrong. Every religion does that. Even atheism does that. But Keller says of all the exclusive truth claims in the world, and there are many, Christianity is the most inclusive. Because as Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. This is why patriarchy has no place in the church. This is why racism has no place in the church. This is why ethnic superiority has no place in the church because all are level at the cross. We all come equally to the cross. Of all the exclusive truth claims, this is the most inclusive. And it is an exclusive truth claim, let's be honest. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. I believe that. Only God can do what he's doing. We know that this offends our sensibilities, but only God is truth. I'm betting it all on the triune God of the universe. Finally, part four, we see the outcome of this redemptive, reforming work of God. We see the renewal of God's people, and we see the praise that is due to his name. Look at verse 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God delivers us as only he can. He saves this tiny remnant of, you know, helpless people from a mighty, mighty civilization. And they get to go back home. Look what happens then in verses 16 through 19. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. A path in the mighty waters. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So we know that this is the language of the Exodus. He talks about making a way in the mighty waters. We know that, that God did the most miraculous thing ever when he sent the 10 plagues upon Egypt in order to get Pharaoh to release his people. And the 10th plague was the worst, the death of the firstborn son. But if anyone would take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over their doorway, death would pass over because of the blood of the lamb. We know that, that the Exodus story is what he's talking about here. But then he says, don't think about the old things. He says, I'm doing a new exodus. I'm doing a new thing. I'm not talking about what happened 1,000, 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about a new exodus. God is, is still in the business of delivering his people. He's still in the business of bringing them out of bondage. It's what Celebrate Recovery is all about. It's what church should be all about. We have the hindrance of sin that so easily entangles. And yet God says, I want to deliver you from it. I want to deliver you from yourself. I want to deliver you from the things of counterfeit gods that will never satisfy you or fulfill you. I want to deliver you from those things. And I'm doing a new thing. 
Some of you don't like new things. Sometimes people don't like change. My wife is very change adverse. Uh, she's actually better than me in some ways at that. But uh, sometimes you don't like when plans change. But I'm telling you, God is a God who does new things, who leads us into new frontiers. And we, we can see that God makes a way in the desert, that he parts the sea for us to pass on dry land if we will trust him where he leads. When I think about the next 80 years at Woodmont, I think about new things that God's gonna do. I think about a new way of being church still based on the church's one foundation on Jesus Christ and his word. But I'm excited at what God's doing in our city. How great is it to be in Nashville when nations are flocking here? It's an exciting opportunity for us on this corner. Let's not miss the new things that God is doing all for his praise. Let's close with verses 20 and 21. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. The new reformation is gonna lead to us praising God and exalting him for who he is. I'm excited about what God's gonna do. I don't know how it's all gonna work in a secular age, but I do know if we are faithful to admit our problem, to invite the solution, to, to fully give ourselves to God's rescue plan, because only he is God, the exclusivity of who he is, we will see the outcome, a new reformation that will result in the praise of the glorious God who is high and exalted, holy and lifted up. Let's pray. God, we confess to you today that we have been blind, we have been deaf to the goodness of who you are, to the goodness of your ways. God, we think so often we have things figured out. We think we know better. We think that our ways are best. But your surprising strategies lead to life and our ways lead to death and destruction. God, let us today renew our commitment to you as we get off the throne of our own lives and exalt you in your rightful place as Lord of our hearts and our lives and everything that we are, body, mind, and soul. God, I pray that you would Help us to surrender ourselves to, to you anew today, trusting that, that you know what you're doing. Just like a river guide who can safely lead us through this life and, and not only safely lead us, but lead us to enjoy it and to thrive and have fun in it, to lead us to ultimate joy and peace. God, I pray that you would help us to find that only by giving ourselves to you as you have given yourselves to us, not sparing your only son. Lord, we thank you that in this world of competing truth claims, that your word stands forever. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that by coming to you, we come to the Father, that we're made right with God, we're made right with each other, we're made right even with this world. God, I pray that you would remind us of what is right and good and true, 
Help us to take a stand in love and in humility and in kindness to be able to say to the, the different competing truth claims, we're betting everything on Jesus. God, we thank you that you're still in the business of delivering people, that you break the bonds of addiction, that you break the chains of systemic sin, that you break spiritual strongholds over our lives through prayer and through your word and through us growing in grace as we're conformed to your image. God, I thank you for delivering me, for delivering my family, for delivering Woodmont Baptist Church as you have time and time again. God, we can't wait to see what you're gonna do. We know that you're doing new things in our world, in our church, and in our personal lives. Help us to fear not, but to trust that as you guide us, we're gonna find streams in the desert. We're gonna find a way in the wilderness. We're gonna find a path of dry land through the middle of mighty rushing waters. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Amen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you haven't come to him uh, for the free gift of salvation that's yours by grace through faith in him, I'd love to talk with you about that. We believe as evangelicals that, that we have to come to a moment of surrender and that the holy hound of heaven that has been pursuing us finally gets a hold of us, that at that moment we surrender and we come by grace, by God's grace, through expressing faith in him. We do that through believer's baptism too. Maybe you've never been baptized and you say, I need to follow Jesus' example of believer's baptism, of dying to myself and being raised to new life. Maybe you just wanna come pray at the altar. Maybe you're going through a, a fire and flood kind of season right now. Maybe you don't know why God has you in that season, but maybe you just wanna come to the altar and pray. Maybe you wanna pray on behalf of someone else. Maybe you're just interceding. It doesn't mean that you're all messed up and broken, even though you are, and I am too. If you come forward today, we all are deeply flawed and need the Lord. We can't be a culture here at Woodmont that pretends like we have it all together, because none of us do, only God does, and that's the beauty of it, is that he does have it all figured out if we come to him honestly. Maybe you wanna join Woodmont today, whatever it is that you need to do at this time, will you please stand and sing our hymn of response? I'll be down here front to talk with you or pray or whatever you wanna do.